Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of White Coats at the Round Table. Just like Mike has mentioned millions of times before, you don't get to hear my voice starting off, but if you haven't yet and you've been listening, we hope that you like the channel, subscribe, um, and review us. But like Mike says, if you don't like what you hear, don't review us, please. Just wander off to somewhere else like Wondery, uh, where you belong. So this... Uh, this interview I'm really looking forward to. It's a lot of comprehensive information that I I've, I've looked for in the past, took many hours to get through. And I think we're having somebody on today who has a lot more to say about it, has a lot of history and experience with helping these guys out. Uh, and these guys I mean people like Mike and I. So Mike, can you tell us a little bit about what we're gonna be talking about today? Sure, John. And you did pretty good on the intro, but I will never say to uh, smash the like button. This is a professional podcast. So one, of the, one of the core tenets of White Coats of the Round Table is career development. And a big part of career development is making sure that through this platform that we can help listeners just uh, become more educated and more knowledgeable about different aspects of their career. If you have more knowledge, you know, knowledge is power, and that hopefully leads to a more fulfilling career. So today we're going to try and tackle a topic that I hope maybe is a little bit dry, but maybe not. We're going to try and tackle it in a really good way. We're going to talk about employment contracts because every single person in healthcare has dealt with a contract. And I would venture to say, John, that almost every single person in healthcare has maybe had a contract that they were not too pleased with. Sure. Understandably so if you don't know what you're looking for. I have some contract stories, and maybe we can even uh, share them with our guests. But without further ado, I think our poor guest has been waiting too long in the green room. So He's going to have to wait a little bit longer. Yes. So, John, why don't you give us a famous intro for Nick, our guest today? So, everybody, put your hands together. We have Nick Messino. Nick Messino did what he could to shake off the look of horror on his parents' faces as they argued his case. Like Tom Cruise and a few good men, he couldn't handle the truth. But that didn't stop him from crushing chemistry and mastering mathematics. It wasn't until his acceptance into AEP, that's Alpha Epsilon Pi, at Rutgers, that his loving mother and father could breathe easy again. Soon after, he brought life into their eyes and the promise of free representation as he accepted his entrance into James Beasley School of Law at Temple University. The decision to join the ranks of those who carry the weight of derivative punchlines was simple for Nick. The promise of mahogany and leather-bound books and the impending escape from engineering were perfectly sound reasons to him. You see, Nick is more than meets the eye. He didn't set out to be a criminal courtroom attorney, but set his sight on greater things. He saw people like me and Mike and thought to himself, these guys need help. Since then, he has joined a Pennsylvania law firm and has focused his efforts on ensuring the medical landscape is as smooth as Mike's forehead. Let us give it up for lawyers on our side. Thanks for joining us as a friend and teaching us the secrets of the Esquire Brotherhood. Nick, it's nice to have you on today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, uh, I'm really excited to be here and I'm excited to talk about employment contracts. Let's talk about ophthalmology as well, but please tell, fill in the gaps for us. 
Sure, sure. Yeah, no. Um, so I did go to Rutgers University. I did major in mathematics and chemistry. And after that, um, you know, like any good college student, I wanted to stay in school rather than get a job. So I was looking at med school and law school. Um, so my family, a little backtrack a little bit. So my dad, my sister, my uncle, my brother, uh, a couple cousins, all pharmacists. Um, so pharmacy, big tradition in my family. My dad's owned, pharma, or owned pharmacies for a good portion of my life. I feel like I grew up in pharmacies more or less. Um, I was always running around whatever pharmacy he happened to be working at at the time. Um, so I was always in the healthcare space. Um, so, you know, after college, I was looking at law school. I was looking at med school. Med school seemed a lot harder. Um, so <laughs> law school was the, was the way I went. Um, a little bit of a rebellion on my part, you know, not going down the family path of pharmacy school. Although that was one of the reasons I looked at Rutgers um, was for the pharmacy school. But um, so, yeah, so went to law school and I had the chemistry degree. So my plan was to, to get to pharmaceuticals from a kind of a different aspect, get to the research aspects. Um, and then, I mean, that's where I started in chemistry. And then once I went to law school, I was kind of getting into the business side where my, my first interest was intellectual property, um, talking mm -hmm. about like patents and things for behind pharmaceutical drugs. I realized I wasn't nearly smart enough to do the research. That is some really high level, high level research when you get to, you know, pharmaceutical, um, you know, research as far as chemistry goes. Um, so, you know, again, I took a little bit of the easier path, went to law school, was going down the IP route. And in law school, that's where I kind of started to gravitate more towards the business side of things. Um, I, I took a lot of corporate law classes, tax classes, contracts, things that, you know, the businesses deal with. And I think, again, that comes from, you know, my background with my father who owned his own pharmacies and businesses. So I saw that aspect of it on a very real, you know, part where, you know, someone in the healthcare profession dealing with the business world and while they intersect, you know, there's a lot of areas that they don't necessarily have experience with that, you know, they rely on their advisors, their lawyers, their accountants to get them through these types of things. Um, so after law school, I kind of kept in the healthcare field and ended up in-house at a pharmaceutical compounding company. Um, and, you know, during my time there, I spent a lot of time um, looking at state law. Uh, and if, if you know anything about, you know, which most of your audience do, healthcare law is, it's a lot of state laws. You know, your, your professional licenses are all done on the state level. So pharmacy, doctors, you know, pretty much all of them, they're, they're governed by the state. And that means each state's got its own, you know, laws, regulations, things that you have to comply with, depending on if you're practicing in the state or if you're working with patients in the state. So the compounding pharmacy I'd worked for at the time, they had kind of grown pretty drastically over the last the few years prior to me joining them. And they went from, you know, working with patients in a few states to working with patients across the country. And as a part of that, they had stepped into a lot of compliance, you know, issues that they needed to help address. So my job was essentially going through state boards of pharmacy regulations and statutes and just summarizing them, figuring out what exactly had to be done, um, you know, to stay in compliance with all these states that, that they were now shipping orders to. Uh, so from there, I kind of took a detour, ended up in risk management um, just because I had compliance experience for a mortgage company. That was a short stint, got it back into the law um, where, you know, for the last seven, eight years, I think I was practicing on my own, um, representing pharmaceutical companies, healthcare providers, um, you know, small businesses uh, too as well. Not necessarily focused entirely on healthcare, but, you know, I always had that pharmaceutical compounding and regulatory experience that I could always leverage and you know build a client base off of. Fast forward a few years, um, pandemic hits, and now remote work, which very appealing to me, um, 
became an option for a lot of different employers that I wouldn't have considered if I was required to go and need a punch a clock nine to five. So um, I ended up joining an awesome firm, Wade Goldstein Landau Abruzzo, where I am now. Um, and they are exclusively, you know, transactional healthcare matters. So, you know, they, they, we advertise ourselves as a one-stop one -stop shop for all healthcare providers, uh, business-related matters, you know, pretty much anything short of malpractice litigation, you know, we handle. So you're talking about employment contracts, talking about partnership buy-ins, uh, practice sales, acquisitions. If you're starting a practice, you know, we, we help clients go through the licensing process, you know, setting up their entity, you know, everything a business would go through, but we're just geared towards the healthcare space because we have that experience in it. So we're... We understand the nuance. Um, the, it's obviously a very heavily regulated area, so we understand the regulations that come with it. Um, but yes, yeah, so, and my firm's been around for about 30, 40 years, uh, you know, doing this exact kind of work. There's a lot of experience there, and you know, we continue to do it, and we do it for providers and provider-owned groups across the country. Um, so that kind of brings me to where I am today. Uh, the, you know, on the personal side, there, there's some obviously some gaps in there too. Um, you know, I travel a lot with my wife. I'm married with two kids. Um, so, you know, as long as the professional, I, I, you know, do exist outside of that. I, I, as you pointed out, I don't kind of post too much of it online. That, that's something I've uh, always been kind of, uh, I don't know, different. But yes, yeah, so, I mean, my, my firm, we, we, we do this all the time. You know, this is what we do. Um, you know, we represent healthcare providers in the, in the legal world, in the business world, and it's where experience is. So, and like you said, you know, the healthcare providers, they're all signing contracts. So you get into employment contracts and everyone is dealing with them. And more often than not, after I speak to someone, especially their first contract, they probably didn't talk to an attorney too. So like you said, Mike, they're probably at some point, you know, regretting what they signed and they might not realize it until a few months, years later down the road when, you mm -hmm. know, that section that they didn't understand, they said, well, it sounds all right and just moved on past it. Now it's coming into play and now it's biting them in the butt. And, you know, this is where, me as the lawyer comes in because I'm trying to prevent those problems down the line by looking at the contract kind of preemptively and helping you identify those issues and understand what exactly it says beforehand. So, so is the whole attorney's office set up to handle this type of work then primarily for m medical professionals or is it, are you the one specializing in the office? No, no. Everyone in my firm, I am. Yeah, I'm not afraid to admit I'm on the lower end. You know, some of the guys in my firm, the, the partners, they've been practicing for 30, 40 years exclusively mm -hmm. representing physicians, uh, physicians, you know, I, I say physicians just because that was always kind of the, the general clientele, but in the last 10, 15 years, obviously, we, you know, advanced practitioners are, are filling in a lot of the gaps and they're under contract too, and they need contracts reviewed. And, you know, a lot of States, they can own practices. So it's, it's not just physicians anymore. It's nurse practitioners, CRNAs, pharmacists, um, mm -hmm. you, know, you name it, high level practitioners, we deal with them. And it's not even, you know, you pointed out ophthalmology, um, you know, by way of weird historical accident, my firm just happens to, I think something around half of our clients are ophthalmologists, you know, mm -hmm. they're just very known in that niche space. Um, and so that, that's just an area we know a lot about, but it doesn't mean we just exclusively represent ophthalmologists. So we, you know, we cover cardiologists, orthosurgeons, you know, you name the field we've represented. So if anybody here listening to the podcast is looking for a firm that they can work with within their practice or anything else, are, are you looking... Or is your office looking for new clients as well or available for new clients? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, especially employment contracts, those aren't you know, too lengthy as far as mm -hmm. the workload on any, any one lawyer. So everyone in my firm does them. We all do them very often. You know, some, some of the, the partners will do 
five, six, seven a week. And that's not just reviewing them. That's also drafting them on the employee employer side. So we, mm-hmm. we get an interesting perspective into the negotiation process, the drafting process, because we get to see what the employers are willing to do and what the employees are asking for. So it, we like to think of it's a unique you know, viewpoint on how the entire you know, process works. And, you know, we use that for our client's advantage, obviously. You know, we want our clients to get the best deal possible if they're on their employer side. You know, they want to get the best employee possible, obviously, at the lowest price point they can. Um, If you're on the employee side, we want to get you the best deal as possible, the most money, the best perks, the best benefits. And we want to, more importantly, make sure you're protected. Uh, But, yeah, so my firm all around, you know, all of us are healthcare attorneys. uh, We're very focused on that space, and that's pretty much the only thing we do, so. So let's let's talk a little bit more about contracts because you know if we're going to have you on, we're going to try and get as much free information from you as we can. Sure. So sure. <clears throat> we have a show outline that you actually uh, put together, and it's incredible. And for our listeners, normally our show notes are just for our patron members, but when we have guests on, what we're going to do is we're going to open this up because if the guests are bringing on all of this knowledge, we want to make sure that we can share it. Talk to me a little bit, Nick, about contracts. I know in the show notes, you go through step-by-step of the interview process and how it works from start to finish of when you first initiate an interview to when you sign the contract. Maybe give me an overview of that. And can you identify, just starting with the interview process, potential red flags? I think in, within the purposes of this conversation today, I'd like to focus on like the common pitfalls, the big 30,000-foot overview red flags that maybe you encounter a lot in your work. Sure, sure. And you, the whole process from you know interview to, to the final contract, that's one of the questions I get often as, as a healthcare attorney is, you know, what is my role in it? So, uh, you know, that being said, so it generally starts with the interview. Um, you know, some of your higher level practitioners, you might get wined and dined. You're taken out to dinner. They want to meet your spouse. Um, you know, partnership is, is a possibility. They're, they're going to want to get to know you before they bring you into their practice. Um, you know, some of the, the lower level practitioners, it might not be that, you know, in, in depth, uh, but they're still going to, you know, do a Zoom interview and then they want you to see the site, maybe have a day of shadowing someone. Um, and, and the most important thing that going through all this process is you don't want to lock yourself into anything at this point. They're, they're going to, you know, if they're going to try to start proposing numbers, whether it be compensation, um, you know, scheduling, all these things, you can listen, you can, you know, mention what you're you're looking for, but you don't want to get into a situation where it looks like you've agreed to something and then down the line when we're negotiating the contract or the even the LOI, the, the letter of intent, um, you know, we're kind of backtracking on something they thought was already in place. So wait, you know, wait, wait. It, so what happens in the interview though when they say uh, what's your current salary range or what are you looking for right now? Because that's always one of the first questions that come up in the first interview. Do we ignore sure. that or what? No, no. I mean, you don't want to ignore it. Obviously, you know, one of the things you don't want to lie. Um, so you want to be a transparent and you that's something you want to be prepared for going in. You want to have a compensation number in mind just to prepare for that question. And generally, I wouldn't recommend giving a hard number unless you are certain that's what you're going to accept. This is where you get into ranges. And the reason you want to get into a range is because, you know, it's not just about your base salary. There's other numbers in that contract and in your employment arrangement that could you know, compensate you for under being underpaid in certain areas, or they can make a really high salary, not that high in reality. If you're paying for things like your own malpractice, all your CME, all these things, you know, that, that base salary quickly gets knocked down. And then the flip side of that is you have to look at the language in the contract, how the base salary is done, how your bonus is done. So while 
they might offer you a hard number and you say, well, yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to have to look at the contract. And, you know, if, if everything looks great, I think that that sounds like a, a plan. Uh, but you do want to try to be noncommittal um, mm-hmm. as best as possible. So. so next step. So on the working off of the outline. So we have the interview. Maybe there is some discussion of salary expectations, but we take your advice because you're a good attorney. And we hold off from boxing ourselves in. We make sure that we don't give specific numbers. We don't say, oh, I'm happy with two weeks of PTO. So now they send us a letter of intent. So walk us through the letter of intent. What should we be looking for? What are those common pitfalls there? Sure, sure. It starts with just the the appearance of the letter of intent. So you might not realize it. It might just be an email with a simple breakdown of the terms. Um, the, the, The one thing you want to keep in mind is generally the letter of intent. It's not legally binding. So what you want is... You want the terms to be there clear um, and you want to look for language that says this isn't binding. There's going to be a contract coming because if that's not in there and you're signing at the bottom, it's possible you're signing your contract and you don't know it just because it says offer letter at the top. Um, you know, it doesn't have to say contract. You know, that there's certain language in there that makes the contract binding. And usually it's a signature at the end that you're saying you're agreeing to this. Um, so that, that's the first thing you want to look out for the LOI is make sure you're not signing a contract by signing the LOI. Um, How would we so, know that? Is there is there something specific that they would try and sneak in that would make it a contract versus an LOI? No, no. Did you not sign an LOI? Period. Yeah, yeah. No. Oftentimes, the LOI won't even require a signature. What you, you'll generally see is you know acknowledge your receipt of this, and you want something that says the contract is coming. You want something that says this letter is not binding. You know, often the employer side, they don't want you to think it's binding if the contract's coming because there's other terms in there that you need to agree to for them to be willing to offer you the base terms. Um, so, you know, when it comes to the LOI, just and, you know, this is also a good point where you might want to start talking to your healthcare attorney. Um, you know, once you get that LOI, now things are getting serious, like you have an offer. So, you know, this is where you consult with your attorney and, you know, Again, if you've been practicing for 10, 20 years, you're very specialized, you're, you're a high targeted individual, the LOI might be something that the attorney negotiates on your behalf. You know, it might not be worth your time getting to a contract if the, the terms of the LOI aren't right. And a lot of providers don't want to get into negotiating the terms of the LOI. So they'll hand that off to me as their attorney or, you know, and say, you know, this is kind of what I'm looking for as far as my terms. If they can't get on the page with this, then I'm, I, you know, it's not worth my time. Um, Oftentimes it's more template form looking, you know, if you're, if you're employed, if your employer is like a large hospital chain or something like that, it's going to look like uh, you know, very basic template. Uh, but regardless, you know, again, you just want to make sure you're not signing the contract, you know, at that point in the, in the stage uh, of the process. So you mentioned that at the time that you get the LOI, that's a good opportunity to then bring the lawyer in and start reviewing things. I think, you know, John's a pharma D I'm a PA. And you mentioned earlier that predominantly your practice is done physician contracts and, and you're doing more and more advanced practice providers. And I've seen that on my end, too, where I think advanced practice providers are, are coming into their own, where maybe traditionally they would just sign the standard contract and they were seeing more staff. And now as there's been more physician shortage, I think negotiation and back and forth between employer and provider is becoming more commonplace. But with that, I don't think the PA community maybe is as familiar with hiring lawyers for employment contract is maybe the physician community. At what point would you say, is it good to start seeking out a lawyer? Is it something where if I called your firm tomorrow, you'd be able to do a healthcare contract review with a pretty quick turnaround? Or should I be thinking ahead 
and trying to procure a lawyer and have them ready to go, knowing that I'm going to be interviewing so that as soon as I get the LOI, I can call my guy. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and timing of it, you know, you, a lot of people get their, they get pressured from their, their employer that they want a response soon. They, they don't want it sitting with their lawyer for three weeks or four weeks. So, you know, me personally, I don't like these things to sit around. You know, once I get the contract, I try to turn them around in a day or two um, at most, just because I understand even if you're not getting pressured by your employer, you feel that like internal pressure that they've given you the contract. They're expecting a response at any moment. And if you don't give it to them, the job could slip away, especially if you're a new graduate, you know. Um, so in my mind, it's always about, um, you know, having the, um, the, the time on hand to, to get these done quickly because you do have to be available. Now, that being said, again, the part, some of the partners in my firm who have a, you know, a lot more client load than I do, they might not be able to get to it for a week or two. So, you know, if you're insistent upon getting, you know, someone with that, that high demand, it might be a little bit more difficult to get it turned around. Quickly. Um, you know, it, it's, it's. It's not often, you know, physicians, you usually see, especially new ones, residents graduating, um, they're, they have a good amount of lead time into their start date. So it's not that you, much of a pressure situation to get it turned around. Physician assistants, nurse practitioners, it's not usually like that, especially if it's your second job where they're expecting you to start in a couple months, a month, whatever the case may be. They want an answer and they want it soon. They're, they're mm -hmm. not going to wait around for weeks. Um, so, yeah, the, the timing of these things, you know. It's important to get them done quickly. And like I said, I don't like to leave them lingering out. I usually keep a few hours of my day always set aside for employment contracts. So when they come in, I'm available and get them done. Um, but yeah, yeah, for the most part, that, that's something you want to talk to your attorney about right from the get go. Do you okay, have so, yeah. so when we're like Mike mentioned, even pharmacists, I don't I'm not sure of many pharmacists, unless you're switching industries, are looking for an attorney to help figure these out. Now, let's can we can we put it into perspective of some of our listeners where they may have dealt with this in the past with contracts where they can think back to their last contract? What's what are the, some of the most likely issues that we're going to find in our contracts that we should be reviewing or maybe even go back and looking at old letter of intents and say, oh, OK, this this is clearly um not in my favor, or I should have looked this up before. Any any sort of trend that you've seen? So, I mean, the, the one that I, I think I see most often where people are like, oh, crap, what did I sign? Like, down the line is when it comes to something like a signing bonus. Mm -hmm. You know, not reading the fine print on your signing bonus and understanding the repayment terms, that is usually a pitfall people are walking into often. They see the money, they're just happy they're getting ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, and it's like, where do I sign? Give me the money. Six months later, they're in a job they hate, and now they're talking about, well, now I'm going to owe that money back, and when am I going to owe it? How am I going to owe it? And th th that's something I think with as we continue to see signing bonuses, which in this market is just some of them are outrageous. You know, it, it, it's it's insane, um, but there's strings attached. So the more you see them, the more you're going to start seeing that as a major pitfall, uh, as something that people come back on down the line, where you know, again, they're. They're wondering what they signed and they don't understand it. And they, they try to reread it at the time and they still don't understand it. And I, it, it's so often we get calls about this where it, it's, yeah, because it's the money. It's always the money that, that scares people, um, what's going to happen. And then, you know, second to the signing bonus is the non-compete. Again, when, you, when you're talking about leaving your job, that's when you're starting to look at, well, did I sign a non-compete? How long is it for? What's the radius? Where can I work? And, you know, 
you don't necessarily want to think about your exit strategy when you're first interviewing for the job, but it's not a bad idea to know that you have an exit strategy. Are you going to have to relocate to a different state to find a new job? So that, that that's another one where at some point, you know, people are like, well, what did I sign? I should have looked at that closer. Could I have negotiated it down? If it was just, you know, half the distance, I don't have to move and I can still, my commute's the same, you know? So the non-competes and the signing bonuses, I think where, you know, as far as trends are, are, hot topics these days. So non-competes, would those, would those be found in the body of a contract itself, or is that going to be a separate document historically? 95% of the time, it's going to be in the contract itself. So not again, like I said from the beginning, a lot of this is state-specific, and non-competes are you know one of the more regulated aspects on the state level as far as the contract goes. So a lot of states are banning them. All right, Nick. So as you're talking about you know non-competes, you're talking about you know how to exit you mentioned that there's opportunity there to negotiate. And I think this can be really intimidating for people because especially maybe you're a new graduate, if you're a PA or an NP or a PharmD, you're you know, 24, 25 years old, so you're young, you're excited. And the idea of going back to the employer and saying, well, actually, is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Give us some tips on negotiation. What are your, what are your thoughts? How can someone approach that in a, in a way that maybe makes it less intimidating? So, I mean, not, not to plug my services too much, but the number one easiest way is you hire an advisor that knows how to do it. Um, it it's People think it's, it's going to be some shrewd negotiation with a lot of, you know, sneaky tactics or anything like that. It's really not. It's for, for employment contract. It's very upfront. You know, the employer, if they're doing a lot of hiring, they're more or less going to be familiar with what the spectrum of S are going to be from the employee. You know, each of the topics in the outline, you'll see, um, you know, there, there's a way to do it that's a completely employee friendly and there's a way to do it that's completely employer friendly. So there's always that spectrum and the employer is going to know. So you start with, you just have to ask, you know, if, if you want more money, if you think the salary is not right, if you want more signing bonus, it's about asking. So, you know, you just have to put the ask out there and it's not about demanding it. It's not about finding some you know clever way to ask. It's usually just being respectful, pointing out, saying, I think a salary of, you know, this much is more appropriate for someone of my skill level. And that's it. That you know, it doesn't have to be complicated. You you might, you know, I'll sometimes throw in some supporting data based off market trends, you know, the, the cost of living in the area, something like that. But for the most part, it's a matter of just asking. And it's about asking in the right way. Um, you know, which is just respectful and courteous where it doesn't come off demanding. You know, what we always tell people is you're negotiating with your future boss. So, you know, they're gonna learn a lot about you, you're gonna learn a lot about them, and how they respond and how you ask is gonna tell a lot about each other in the situation. It makes sense because I, I think, you know, the, the few times that I've had to renegotiate my contract, which I've done solo and maybe I should have hired a lawyer and maybe I left something on the table. But um, my approach was just, you know, we need to find areas of mutual benefit. If, if I'm, you know, feeling like I'm getting screwed, that's no good. If they feel like they're getting screwed, that's probably no good. And there's probably a happy middle ground somewhere where, where everyone can be happy. So I think that that makes sense with what you're saying, where it doesn't have to necessarily be contentious. It doesn't have to be like they show it in Hollywood where you're pounding your fist on the table and screaming at each other, but rather maybe looking for that common ground within it. Yeah, exactly. And in this day and age, I mean, especially through the employment contracts, it's all done through you know, exchanging marked up agreements or through email. It's, you know, rarely am I getting on the phone with uh, another lawyer or a practice, you know, position and you know, negotiating over the phone or anything like that. It's, it's all through writing. It's all through email. So it, it's very boring and very plain and simple, which makes it nice because it, it doesn't require that kind of drama and stuff that gets people a little bit worked up. And 
you know, I think, and like you said, after you go through once or one or two of these negotiations, I can tell you, you know, after I have a client that I read a contract for the first time, when they come back to, to read their next contract, it's so much more streamlined. They, mm -hmm. they know the points. This is, it's a very finite amount of information and the issues don't really change that much over time. And like I said, it's a spectrum. So if you go through this once, you have a pretty good idea of what those issues are and what you're looking for. Um, and the second time around, you're kind of like, bing, bang, boom. Like, you know, th this is what I care about. I remember this time and this, I didn't get this. My CME was too low this time. I want more PTO. And so, you know, the, the, the repeat clients will come up and, you know, they, this is what I want. Mark it up, send it back, goes off to the employer. It's all very minimal on as far as interaction with the client on that part, you know. Now, because have you, have you worked on the employer side and the candidate side for these negotiations then? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I, so we, we see like what is it mostly negotiating salary itself, health benefits, PTO, uh, different types of coverage for insurances, educational costs. Like what am I missing? Yeah. I mean, so you got the, the big things, the comp, um, you know, not just your, your base salary incentive mm -hmm. compensation is a huge one and it gets into how it actually is determined. Um, you know, and then you got you, what we call your softer asks, which, like you said, is your. Well, can, I, can I ask you about that and the full caught the whole comp package? Because not everybody here listening understands how those comp back packages are break, broken down. They're usually seeing that they get an email from their employer that says, "Hey, great news! Um, your salary is this, but did we tell you our whole compensation?" And then everybody's just rolling their eyes. They're like, "Yeah, you didn't give me extra money. You're just telling me how much you're paying me in benefits on mm -hmm. top." So yeah. can you explain that? Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're, they're looking at their total cost. And mm -hmm. to them, that, that's what they're paying you. And mm -hmm. you know, if, if you're getting health insurance premiums, that's a cost that's coming to their pocket. And you might not look at it as extra compensation. But if you have to pay for it out of your pocket, it definitely looks like an extra expense out of your, out of your side. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it's, it's tough to view those things as extra compensation. But when you're looking at the whole contract, you kind of have to mm -hmm. because – you know, and you talk about negotiating tactics. This is one, you know, that as far as a tactic goes is one you want to use in that if you're going to ask for more, you know, base salary, you maybe want to point out that some of the expenses they're covering are low mm -hmm. or, you know, the flip side, if you don't want to ask for more base salary because you feel like you kind of already agreed to it, you can ask for more in CME expenses or, you know, society dues, licenses, make sure all those things are covered. And if it's just an allowance, you ask for more, um, you know, there's other software, the signing bonus, that's always one that has some wiggle room, relocation expenses. That's something you should always ask for. If you're moving to a new new area, the, you know, um, and then another thing as far as business expenses, if they're not willing to necessarily cover them, you can ask for them to pay for them out of pre-tax dollars. Mm -hmm. So you submit these expenses beforehand, before your, it comes out of your paycheck and Uncle Sam takes their cut, those expenses are being deducted from your compensation. So mm -hmm. you kind of have to look at that whole compensation package and you know, understand the intricacies of it because that is what they're negotiating on their side. So you have to look at it the same way they are to get an understanding of what you can, can and cannot ask for. Okay. So what are some major killers when you have clients going up to their potential employer with contract in hand and they've ignored your advice? Any stories of, or any examples of what has happened when they don't take your advice? Um, yeah, so I mean, it's never a specific ask. So it's it, 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 I can not think of one instance where somebody asking for something in the right way caused the, you know an employer to pull an offer. Mm -hmm. it, it's more about the way you do things. Yep. And you know, if you have a client that wants to just say, "Well, I'm entitled to this, and I'm entitled to that," and you start phrasing it that way, 
they might pull the offer because you're not looking like you might be a bit of a problem employee for them. Um, and, you know, it, it goes both ways. So, like I said, you learn a lot about your, your future employer, especially if you're working for a smaller practice where, you know, the managing partner is the same guy you'll be working with on a day to day basis, the same one that's approving or not approving your request. You know, you're going to understand it, how they are going to be as your boss. You know, are they going to be manipulative? Are they going to be controlling? Are they going to just be a complete hard ass and mm-hmm. not give in on anything? And you see this in the negotiation of the employment contract and it just carries right through to the employment relationship. Um, so it, it's a lot about learning and that part of it. You, you just have to make sure that you're respectful and you don't demand things because that's where you're going to piss off your employer. And if they have another candidate, they, you know, they're going to go with that. One, so. So I'd like to circle back to non-competes because I want to use the last remaining time that we have to maybe just focus on some of those sticky points for people in contracts. And I feel like non-competes, when I'm on Facebook, when I'm on Reddit, constantly people are getting uber screwed by non-competes. So I've heard heard multiple things. I've heard that non-competes are very difficult to enforce. So I shouldn't worry about it because, you know, it's probably not even something that's ever going to be enforced. I've also heard that I should never sign a contract that has a non-compete in it. So can you give some commentary on maybe where, you know, an average healthcare professional that's listening to this podcast, where do they fall or where should they be in terms of non-competes? Is this something that we should fight to the death and and not tolerate at all? Is this something that if it's a reasonable non-compete, we should be comfortable with it? Where would you stand on that? Uh, So my my general viewpoint is is if it's reasonable, then it's not a problem unless you look at the the job as a short-term you know position um you know if you're planning to be there for the long run or you know a significant amount of time and you're not kind of limiting your exit options by having you know if you have to move to get a new job that's a problem for a lot of people you know some people don't mind but i wouldn't do it you know so that that when you're not compete that that's what you want to think about when you're looking at it if yeah that's what i tell clients is if at, at the end of this job, when you're deciding you want to leave and the only option for you to then is to move, you know, especially if you have wife, kids, husband, whatever the case may be, you know, that's something you have to consider. Like you're willing to uproot your life if this job doesn't work out because that's what you're locking yourself into. Mm. Um, and then, you know, that, that's where it comes into the negotiation aspect is you want to look at the, that geographic radius. You know, if you're working in a place like New York City, two miles is reasonable. If you're mm. in, you know, Montana, 100 miles might be reasonable. So you have to look at the specific circumstances of where you're working. Um, as far as their enforceability, again, it's all state-based. California, Massachusetts, um, I'm trying to think of some others, outright prohibit non-competes on healthcare workers. Um, and that, you know what, what's considered a healthcare worker, you have to look at the state-specific definitions because it doesn't necessarily include always physician's assistants or pharmacists or something like that. Um, but in those states, I can tell you pretty much blanket statement, they're not enforceable. But you'll still see them in contracts and i'll review a contract and i'll point out this isn't enforceable it's california they're not allowed non-competes shouldn't be in here and the responsibility is well we still keep prefer to keep it in and they do that because they want it to be a disincentive they want the person that didn't have a healthcare attorney read it or doesn't consult with them down the line is thinking about leaving their job and they see this non-compete it doesn't even cross their mind that it's not enforceable and now they're thinking well i'm stuck here um and it it does it happens and now as far as being successful in enforcing a non-compete action to your question, Mike, uh, it is hard. I will say it's absolutely hard and it's expensive, but it's expensive for both sides. And this is the problem. If you get sued, you might win, but if the contract doesn't call for attorney's fees, it's still going to cost you money. 
And, you know, litigation is not cheap. You know, it's it's not a fun process and it's not something you want to deal with when you're trying to get a new job and you can't work at the new job because now you're stuck in litigation and your next employer doesn't want to touch you because you're a liability. Um, you know, because your next employer can be sued too, tortious interference of a business contract. And that's not something you want to walk into. You know, if, if I'm on the employer side, that, that's something we generally want to ask about in the interview process. You know, is there any, do you have any restrictive covenants, non-competes that you're, you're liable to? Because if you are and you're going to end up in litigation for the first six months you're working here, I don't know if it's worth it. So, you know, the, the non-competes, huge issue and they are enforceable. They are something you have to take serious. And there's definitely something you want to look at closely. So we've brought this up before and had a little bit of fun with some TikTok videos that Mike's posted. PTO, I want to I want to get your opinion uh, and what you maybe you've seen in contractors with this new unlimited PTO that's been out there <laughs> and what that means, how we how we negotiate with that. Uh, what are your thoughts? It's tough. It's tough because it sounds so nice and it's so appealing to just not have to worry about it. But I don't know too many employers that have the unlimited PTO that don't just kind of give you that look when you're starting to use it like, oh, another vacation. Huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, was that your fourth one this year? Huh? There's no PTO limit. There's no PTO limit. That's fine. Yeah, sure. Just take another vacation. Your job will be here when you get back. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, so it's... It's a double-edged sword. They want someone there. They're hiring you because they need an employee. So if you're, you're taking off unlimited, it's just not a, a doable situation. And unfortunately, most of healthcare workers, it's very difficult to work remote. Um, you know, telehealth works for a lot of practitioners in a lot of fields, but not all of them. And I'd say the majority of them is not going to work. So, you know, unlimited PTO in the healthcare space is doesn't seem very practical to me. Um, I rarely see it in contracts, to be honest. Um, it might be more in the hospital-based systems where it's more of a policy and you'll see that a lot of contracts where they just reference a policy where it kind of covers everyone. In those situations, we almost can never, you know, request any changes. If it's in the contract, that, that's where we have leadway. And, you know, PTO is something I'll always tell people. If they're not willing to give you more compensation, ask for more time off. If, you know, another week for, you know, paid vacation or even make sure you want to have your CME covered so you're not using that can be just as good to some people as an extra, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars so. $20,000. Have you ever seen anybody negotiate down and say, I don't want to limit PTO. I want four weeks, four weeks vacation and comp, uh, <laughs> averaging the difference between the average of the employees who are taking PTO. Anything like that in the past? I haven't. I haven't personally. Okay. No, I can't. This say is I a have, new. This is a new problem that we're all yeah. trying to figure out. So, um, yeah, no, PTO is an interesting one. Yeah. yeah. So, last question I have, and then uh, we'll start wrapping it up just to make sure that we're respectful of your time. So on your show notes, you talk about fringe benefits. And one of the questions I have with that is, do you ever feel like there's a a fringe benefit that is worth kind of being the hill to die on? Because I think a lot of times those fringe benefits, you know, healthcare is notorious for having really terrible health insurance or having very bad dental insurance. So I think we often get the short end of the stick with the fringe benefits. Is that something where we should really put our flag in the ground and say, no, I'm going to negotiate this out. Or is that something that we should just kind of acknowledge is going to be crummy in healthcare? So what, what I tell clients is whatever hill you want to die on, I'm right there with you. That's my job. If, if it's important to you, it's important to me. And if the fringe benefits are what's going to get you, don't, don't accept the contract. They're not willing to change it. Um, I, I can't say personally, as far as fringe benefits, maternity leave. I think that that one maternity, paternity leave, I think that one comes up often where if, you know, someone knows they're having a baby soon and they want, 
you know, if, if, if the employer's not under FMLA because they're too small, and they want some sort of guaranteed PTO or something like that, that I think is something that causes issues a lot um, where people might not be willing to take the job if they're not going to get that granted. Um, I'm trying to think what other fringe benefits. I've seen people get pretty mad about their cell phone bill not being covered, um, which is petty to me, but, you know, if it's important to you, it's important to me. And that, that, that's what I tell people. So um, the, those situations, it's usually not a new employment agreement. It's someone has been working in the same place. They're renegotiating a new agreement. And there's probably a story behind it at some point that they're not telling me the full details where it's a little bit more about principle than anything else. Um, you know, automobile expenses, that's another one people get. I don't know how to say it. Um, touchy about maybe they, they, they want they, they, they want to have their, their if, especially I mean, if they're, you're in one of these rural areas and you're driving between locations a lot. To me, it totally makes sense. Like, why shouldn't the practice be kicking in if they're expecting you to drive an hour between offices on a regular basis? Um, so, you know, th those would be the fringe benefits, I think, that that kind of get people a lot. Um, you have like the standard ones, health insurance, all those. They're usually not the best plans, especially small providers. Uh, but I think people kind of know that going into which sets the expectations pretty low. Well, I've got one more question um, to wrap it up. Actually, I've got two really quick ones. Do you watch Arrested Development, Nick? <laughs> the important questions. Uh, I do. And if you ask me the lawyer's name, I'm not going to remember it because I heard you mention that in another episode. <laughs> I was going to ask you a very specific question. Okay. okay? Shoot. Let's, let's hear it. Would you align yourself more with Bob Loblaw? The no-nonsense attorney or Barry Zucker, Zuckercorn, the family attorney, uh, the tried and true? Hmm. All right. Now, now I have to admit, it's been a while since I watched the show. I don't know then if guess. I can answer that. I'm going to get you either way. It's fine. I'm ready. Uh, you know what? How about we, we talked for about an hour. You give me your estimate. Which do you think I would be? Because I'm not going to Google it after to see. Oh, uh, I, I, I would say uh, Bob Loblaw. Because okay. it's nonsense. You're, it seems like you're getting right to the point. Uh, we'll, we'll talk later. I'm, I'm sure we're going to get to know each other because my second question does kind of lead into that. Uh, if we had you on again in the future to discuss some more legal matters and things we should be looking out for with these employment contracts, what about joint contracts? Uh, if you're starting an LLC, you want to bring on a partner or you want to hire 1099 or you're doing a, a BAA are those things that we can discuss in the future and what you've had uh, dealings with in the past? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, partnership buy-ins, uh, if you're doing the buy-in or just even starting with a partner regularly. I mean, I, I, I think I'm working on a dozen of them right now they, they do tend to take a little bit longer than an employment contract. They'll stretch out over weeks, months, sometimes years. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, absolutely. Do those regularly entity formations, independent contractor, you know, locum uh, employees, all mm -hmm. of the contracts for them joint ventures, you know, any contract we'll generally review. Um, right. I think the only thing we don't generally touch is real estate. That's one of those. We just, it's way too specific and we always hire local counsel, but um, yeah, pretty much any contract, payer contracts, um, you name it, our, our firm will look at it if it's a contract. So, okay. So we're going to, we're going to start a series called, uh, called serial attorneys and not to be concerned, confused with serial by Wondery. So we'll have you back on. I would love to talk to you about that. But w we always end our shows the same way. If you, if you know, uh, we talk about something that you're reading, eating, drinking, consuming, doing, 
whatever in your life that you're really enjoying now that is not associated with your professional life. And it has to be new. It can't be something you've, it can't be like Seinfeld reruns. I'm sorry. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's wrong with Seinfeld reruns? (laughs) I'm actually, I will watch an occasional Seinfeld rerun. Uh, Of course. TV, TV is, uh, I enjoy TV. Um, I'm I'm currently, I just started the, I don't remember the name of the show. It's the one with Ryan Reynolds. And, uh, no, okay. Oh, what was that? I, I think it you said Dahmer by uh, on Netflix, right? The new Jeffrey Dahmer series. That's <laughs> tell everybody on, on here about we're at the right this end, though. So, oh man, we, so we now, to the next one. I'm gonna go ahead and uh, I'll confess, <laughs> I, we my wife and I tried the Dahmer show uh, last week, and <laughs> I don't like gore. Another reason why I didn't go to med school, and the first five minutes, I was like, I'm done, I'm not watching this, I'm out. And yeah. I put on Ted, La- Ted Lasso, and I yeah. smiled, and I was happy, and that's more my my ideal type of show, more than like Dahmer. I so, did the same yeah. thing with Dexter. I watched five minutes of Dexter, and I was out. Nope, yeah. nope, nah. John, well, okay, so let's talk about your real stuff then. What what's the TV show that you're watching now? I'm sorry, I interrupted. I had to ask though. Uh, it was um, so the. Uh, the Wrexham, it's about Ryan Reynolds and, and uh, oh, uh, Rob yes. McElhenney. Mm-hmm. They buy a so- they bought a, 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 like a low level soccer league, in, a soccer team in England, and they're oh, trying yeah. to like revitalize it. Um, but it's interesting, and this was kind of piggybacked off my obsession with Ted Lasso in that I just couldn't get enough of the shows about soccer because I don't actually watch soccer, but I really enjoyed the shows, the English shows about soccer. So I've been working my way, my way through that, and it's uh, been really funny. So I, I would recommend that for sure. I'm sure it comes off of your foosball table days back at Rutgers. Just something stuck. <laughs> I was more of a beer pong man myself, to be honest. We'll talk but, about uh, that on off script then. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Mike, what about you, man? What do you, uh, what's something new? Well, you know what? I'm going to stick with the TV theme. Just to spite mm-hmm. you, I'm going to pick reruns of something. So... I've been uh, watching through the Office Superfan episodes, so I don't know. Those if are you great. Guys, yeah, so if you guys are fans of the Office, I've seen the Office multiple times. I've watched mm-hmm. it through many times, but I haven't watched the Superfan episodes on Peacock. So for listeners that may not know the Office Superfan episodes, there's usually about anywhere from ten to fifteen minutes of extra content in there that got cut for the net network airing, and it is amazing. Because so much of it is is ad living, so much of it is extra, you know, just the the little skits that they do or the little, you know, talking heads. And sometimes it doesn't fit the storyline, and you can see why it got cut. Sometimes it is so essential, and you watch it and you think, I can't believe that wasn't in the original. But it has been so much fun to to rewatch a show of my, uh, you know, high school and college years. And have new things come out from it because of the super fan episode. So I've really yeah, been enjoying I, that. I've heard that the Office Girls podcast uh, wasn't a big winner, so I stayed off of that one. But the super fans, I will, I will second Carolyn when I when awesome. my wife and I cannot find anything to watch, and we can't decide something. It's always just the Office, so yep. it's it's the go to. Um, so I'm gonna that. just stick thing, on. hold on, hold on. So oh, I just God. watched an episode, and I don't know if you noticed. Do you know in Michael's office the certificate of appreciation on the wall behind him? Do you Are know you what this is? Yeah, is that from Tots? Scott's Tots? No, no, no. So he's got a, a certificate. <laughs> he's got a certificate on his wall. Have you ever noticed what it is? No. So today I picked up on it. It's a certificate of authenticity for a genuine Seiko watch, <laughs> which is like, of course. 
Michael Scott would put a Seiko watch certificate of authenticity up on his wall. <laughs> Anyways, go, go ahead, Jeff. That's funny, yeah. man. No, I never knew that. Amazing. Um, so I'm a big – when the house is quiet and I finally have my own time and I'm not working on something else, I like to watch thrillers. Uh, A24, the film studio, I love almost all of their movies. They're just incredible. And so I've gone through that. I've gone through uh, Black Mirror. I've gone through all like the really dark stuff, Oat Studio. And I found one that I really like that just came out called Devil in Ohio. And it's, it is a thriller. It's, it's uh, not really horror much, but the suspense. And I, I really like the whole feeling of you look at somebody and you feel the cringe of people on TV and you're just like, you feel it within yourself. Like I can't get enough of it. So if anybody knows anything that is a psychological thriller or oh, just send it my way, give me some good ideas. Cause I can only look at Reddit so much until it keeps on <laughs> eternal uh, sunshine, on the spotless mind, eternal sunshine, on the spotless mind. Like, no, give me something else. But yeah, TV shows all around. This is great. Wonderful. Yeah. So Nick, thank you so much. Oh, thank you guys. It's great to have you on. I really hope to have you on again soon so we can talk about some of these other contracts that we're all concerned about. Being in the pharmacy space and regulation, that's we live on regulation. Every day, morning, noon, night is all about documenting the right way to make sure we stay within regulation. So contracts and ideas of things we do not understand or how we can leverage uh, different agreements. Uh, or even just what what type of agreements are out there that we don't know about. I think that's uh, beneficial to anybody listening on here today. So we're happy to call you a friend of the podcast, and we, we hope you had a good time too, Nick. I did. I did. Thank you very much, and happy to come on anytime.